Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you uh, for this marvelous uh, book of Hebrews. It is, um, there is so much here. And, and um, Father, we come asking that you would help us to, to, to remember uh, the things we learned in previous weeks, uh, that as, and even if we weren't here, that as we enter into this section, Father, I ask that you would help us to, um, to, to gain understanding of the context, the setting, and the implications that follow from all that's said in this passage. Uh, Lord, there's so much here. Um, you've been wrestling with me all week, and, and, and I, I believe this, this is word that is, is being preached at me um, as I am the one doing the preaching. And so, Father, I pray that we would hear your voice, that we would sense your heart and your calling in our lives. Uh, we thank you that you are so good and so kind and so gracious to us. Um, and we just ask that you would help us now. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we, have, for we who have believed enter that rest, just as... As he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in the passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day today. Saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two -ed, any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division from the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrows and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And Father, we do thank you for your word to us. We ask that you would give us insight and understanding and 
clarity of um, thought um, as we listen uh, to your word, as we unpack it. Uh, Lord, we ask you that you would guide us. Speak to each one of us this day. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, as we read through that, did anybody catch a key word through the passage? Rest. A bunch of times. I noticed this this week over and over and over again. The word appears some ten times. Uh, three more times if we were to go back up into the very tail end of chapter 3. Uh, a, a number of other places that you can insert the word rest, like enter it. The, it's, it's talking about rest. Um, in one level, this, this chapter is dealing with the busyness of our lives and of all weeks. I would have to study this passage. I almost was just laughing. Like last week it started and this week it sort of followed through. Inevitably, whatever I'm teaching on is what God is going to give me very practical illustrations on how it applies to my life. I've had two car issues in the last two weeks. You guys all very much know about my alignment. Then last Sunday I get home. Gideon was, you know, practicing driving my car after church. Didn't notice it, but he forgot to turn off the headlights. And so two days later, when I hop back in my car, there's like nothing. So I was like, oh, man, which led to discovering that the battery was actually bad. Um, I had a, a fuse at my house go bad, like arcing bad, which I'm like, I don't have time to deal with an arcing fuse or breaker. But the deal with arcing breakers is you sort of make time for that sort of situation. So I made time to deal with that, which led to another issue that's been resolved. And then there's the caring for my dad of all weeks. So I take him to the doctor, have to take him to another appointment, uh, have some discussions. Um, I think eating a piece of pizza, I might have done some damage to some uh, a, a, a filling. I'm not sure. I'll, I'll let it ride out to see what happens there. Not looking at my dentist friend over there uh, for conviction. I'll, teeth heal themselves, so we'll figure it out. Um, where was I here? I'm feeling other conviction that I wasn't planning for. Um, and then coming to church today, hop in the pickup truck, put the key in, and it's like click, 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 click. Okay, so it's more than the battery. It's okay, God. I know what I'm teaching on. I got another car. Let's go grab the other keys, run to church. In the midst of the busyness of our lives, none of this I'm not complaining about. Like, life happens to all of, like, we live in a fallen world. Things are, are perpetually breaking down on us. But in the midst of this world that we live into, and I'm guilty as the next, like, probably more guilty than the next guy, but the propensity to get so going and moving in life that you're just sort of bogged down. And then to be studying a passage where rest is in it so much, it's like, this is so utterly convicting to me. There was an article in 2012 in the New York Times. New York Times is a huge magazine. They get all, like, to get thousands of comments in their their. their Post is not a big deal, but this one had like thousands of responses because it sort of hit a nerve. 
uh, Tim Kreider, who I don't think is a believer by any stretch of the means, is he wrote an article called The Busy Trap. And this is sort of an excerpt with small additions to make it flow into two paragraphs. He writes, if you live in America in the 21st century, you've probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how busy they are. It's become the default response when you ask anyone how they're doing. Busy, so busy, crazy busy. It is pretty obviously a boast disguised as a complaint. And the stock response is a kind of congratulations. That's a good problem to have. Better than the alternative, meaning death. Busyness serves as kind of a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy. Completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. We're busy because our own ambition or drive or anxiety because we're addicted to the busyness and dread what we might have to face in its absence. It's fascinating that this is a secular guy addressing sort of some of the root issues of of busyness. And he doesn't really identify a, a, a solution. He just sort of identifies the problem. Now today, in large part, the writer of Hebrews is going to identify the root of the problem so that we can sort of deal with it. Um, it's a beautiful passage. Like to think that God is trying to grab hold of his people to encourage them to rest is a beautiful thing. The more I study this passage, the more I realize, though, that the concept of rest, first, it originates with God, but second, in order to obey God in this command and every other command, it takes faith. Um, we'll get to that. So verse 1, therefore. There's a lot of therefores in Hebrews. When we see a therefore, we're forced to sort of to, to, to back up. And where are we in Hebrews? You know, we come to this one week at a time. It was really de- delivered as a letter where you read the whole thing. Um, instead of reviewing all of Hebrews, let's just go back to the previous verse. And in the previous verse... Verse 19, we read, So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So so what's what's the culmination? Like, where did that come from? Chapters 1 and 2, the author of Hebrews has identified Jesus as greater than angels, both in his deity and in his incarnation coming to earth. Chapter 3, he moves on to Moses. Nothing bad is said about Moses. He points to Moses as the most well-respected leader of the Jewish people. He is the man whom God uh, penned the first five books of the Bible by the Jews known as the Pentateuch. Um, But then he goes and he quotes from Psalm 95, a psalm that would have been read every single worship day, every Saturday. They would have started their service with Psalm 95. A beautiful psalm, a a, a call to, to worship, a call to Uh, taking our eyes off ourselves and looking at this great, awesome God that we serve. This great, awesome God that loves us, that created us. It's just beautiful. But then the last few verses of Psalm 95 come this stern warning. 
And that's what the author of Hebrews quotes from. He doesn't get the quote-unquote good stuff. He gets the, hey, be warned. As you come close to God, don't harden your hearts against His voice. And as he goes through that, he, he looks at the generation that Moses led out of slavery. They saw great things. They saw God bring all of these plagues on Egypt. They, they, they saw through the Passover their, the sparing of their, their firstborn sons. They saw God part the Red Sea. And then the Red Sea to swallow up the Egyptian army that was chasing them. They see God providing for them in the wilderness as they're making their way to the promised land. Two years into the journey, God says, this is the land I'm going to give you. Spies are sent out. Twelve spies in specific. The twelve spies go out. Ten of them come back and say, it's beautiful land, but there are giants there. There's no way we can do this. Let's. It was better under slavery. Let's go back to slavery. They, at least there, we got three meals a day and we had a, a place to lay our heads. And, but there were two of those spies, Caleb and Joshua, that said, no, this is a beautiful land flowing with milk and honey and provision. Sure, there's giants there, but if God has given us this land, we're going to take it and it will be okay. Well, because of their lack of faith and their grumbling, that generation that didn't believe, Moses and all of the adults, they were punished by wandering in the desert for another 38 years, for a total of 40 years. At the end of Moses' life, God showed Moses this promised land, but he died outside of it. Caleb and Joshua and the younger generation that didn't have the sort of the the accountability or they hadn't reached the age where their faith or lack of faith was sort of in play, they were allowed to enter into this promised land. But at verse 19, we sort of leave with this. So we see that they, that's Moses and the adult generation, they weren't able to enter the land because of unbelief. Unbelief, lack of faith. They didn't trust God to provide for them in a, in a number of different ways, even though they had seen God work in all sorts of ways. And so now we come to verse chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, now I read out of the New American Standard. I I read out the New American Standard in all honesty because this is the Bible I went to Bible college with. I have a lot of miles on this Bible. It's fallen apart on me. I've had it rebound twice. It's like an old friend on the inside. It's very comfortable to me. The New American Standard is not my translation of choice, really, like because it is so literal. It's so wooden because it, 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 it's word for word just sort of like a, a transliteration from the text in most parts. So it can be hard to understand. And this... This, this verse is a classic example. So verse 1 says, Therefore let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Okay, what is this saying? So if I was to take these words and to lay it out in a way that makes sense to my brain, I, I would say, let us, or therefore, therefore, 
while a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear if any one of you may seem to have come short of it. So suddenly we see the first talk of rest. But he goes from the context of Moses' rest, the failure of entering into the land, to, to present day for him, which I think Bible interpretation-wise, it's safe to say present day to us. He says, a, while a promise remains of entering his rest, which then begs the question, what are we talking about rest? If you were to ask me, what is rest? I'd say, well, I love Sunday afternoon naps. That's restful to me. But when I look at the context of this and we look at all of the rest, you'll notice that beginning in chapter 3, verse 11, we see my rest. Uh, Verse 18, his rest. Verse 1 of chapter 4, his rest. My rest. God's rest. This rest is different. This rest can be sort of viewed as threefold as we get through the passage, but I'm speeding ahead to give you guys the cheater notes so that we can keep track of things. So in one sense, rest in this context, he looks back to the entering of the land that for them to enter into the promised land equaled rest, which is huge. When we look at the whole of the scripture and we look at the what we refer to as the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of, of the Bible, if we go back his story and sort of put it into context, remember Israel ended up in Egypt as Joseph was sold in uh, to slavery. He rose to the ranks. His family joined him. They had a very good lot in life for many years under a pharaoh. Their family multiplied and Israel grew exponentially over the many, many years. Then a new pharaoh came to power not knowing the story of Joseph or knowing who this Joseph guy was. And so then he placed Israel into slavery where they remained their whole time there. You have this whole generation of Israel that worked every single day. We know that the pharaoh, as they continued to multiply, he tried to kill the boys. He said, let's make them work harder by forcing them to make more bricks with less straw. And none of us are in the brick-making business, but that makes it a lot harder, I've heard. And so they're working from sunup to sundown as slaves. Every single day of the week, there's no Bible to them. They have their oral tradition. But over a couple, you know, a couple generations of being slaves, you are reduced to essentially animals. So now they leave Egypt, making their way to the land. As they're there, God gives them the law, a beautiful thing. These are people that don't know how to like do anything, and the law is given to help them to figure out how to be a people, 
how to live and how to operate, how to have law and order. They, they didn't have any of that as slaves. And so entering the land, you talk about rest. To go from being slaves to being free in this land where you could live and operate and worship. If my memory is correct, isn't that, uh, wasn't that the request of Moses? We want to go so we can worship. And in between services, like I had this like big aha moment. Like, does this relate to us? I say, oh no, I'm not experienced slavery. Well, according to Hebrews 2, I would disagree with you. Hebrews 2, verse 15, one of the most beautiful verses that I've seen in the Bible. I don't know how it like, how did I not ever see this before? And he might free those who through death, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. I admitted to you that before Christ, as in my previous vocation, as I started seeing just death, like 2003, I was, well, before I was a Christian, I was experiencing death, but then early in my Christian years to, to then when death started striking very close to home. And I realized that, that as a believer of Christ, I was still in slavery out of my fear of death, and God worked a lot. And I think that this ties in. If I would just move along here, so verse 1, let's kind of go through this. Therefore, let us fear, if while a promise remains, so the door to open this rest is still open, entering his rest, if any of you may seem to come short of it, so if you come short of it, the, the idea is you should be very afraid if you haven't entered into this rest that God has opened the door for you to enter in. And so now I mentioned the one rest is, is the, the land, the promise to enter in. The, the second rest, what I think is being mentioned here, is eternal rest. Being at peace with God. We say this all the time, believers and unbelievers. I don't even have a clue why. Like, why would an unbeliever say this? Rest in peace. He's in a better place. It's like, oh, what theological framework do you have this hope of peace beyond this life? Until this death, all you've ever said to me is, it's just about this life. And after this life, it's all done. But the Christian judeo worldview believes that when we were created, we were created eternally. That's why death, as all humans, I don't care what worldview you have, when you're faced with death, it, there's a short circuit because we can't compute because we are eternal beings. And so God here says, while this door remains open, while the promise is still there, enter into it. And if you fall short of entering into this rest, you should be afraid. Which he's going to get into in chapter 9. It's appointed for each one of us to die once. And when we die, we face judgment. And if you're not in Christ, there's plenty to be afraid of. But let not, let's not get into hellfire and brimstone today. 
Because what we see from God is we see this beautiful creator that's pleading with all of us, enter in, I have rest for you. It is available to you. Don't fall short. Verse 2, for indeed, we've had the good news preached to us. Okay, what is he talking about? What is this good news? So glad you asked. This word in the Greek is euangelion, which means the gospel. It can be translated the gospel or it can be translated good news. And so what is the gospel? And for those of you that are familiar, don't get bored. Don't, you get, don't check out like you know this, like you memorized this somewhere, somewhere before. This is critical. So if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul lays out the gospel very clearly. As you're turning there, in Hebrews... Keep going to, don't get, don't let me distract you. You keep going to, you keep going over 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Notice what it says in, in Hebrews that we just read. It says, we have had the good news preached to us. So, so the writer of Hebrews, again, is distancing himself from the apostolic age. He includes, we have heard from them. They have preached to us. Now we're going to generation number one, the apostle Paul. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now I, that's Paul, am making known to you, brethren, the gospel. Same word, good news. Euangelion. Which I preached to you, which you also received, and which you also stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verses 3 and 4, critical definition of the gospel, the good news. What is the gospel? The gospel is... What Paul shares here, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. When he says according to the scriptures twice, what he's saying is is that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was no coincidence. It was foretold of long ago. It was prophesied. It was fulfilled in him. It wasn't sort of like, oh, Jesus died. Let's create this whole idea of the death, burial, and resurrection. It was no from the very beginning. Genesis 3.15. You'll bruise his head, but you will be crushed. It's all through there. And so this is the gospel. Now you can go back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. For... Indeed, we have heard the good news preached to us. They're saying, we've heard this good news. We've heard about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Just as they also, huh? They, now he's going back historically to the people under Moses. How how can they have had the good news preached to them? Just as we look back to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ by faith, they look forward. What was that last miracle? Slaughter the lamb. Take the blood. Wipe it up on the doorpost. When the angel passes over at night, you will be spared if you've done this by faith. The Jews do this today, the Passover celebration. What did Jesus do on the night which he was betrayed? He celebrated the Passover and at the Passover meal, he said, this isn't just the Passover meal. I am becoming the Passover lamb. So they always looked forward to the Messiah, maybe not with the clarity that we have looking back, 
but they looked forward by faith that one day that as they were slaughtering these animals and saying this animal's dying for mice and one day this will not happen anymore because God will make a way. For indeed we have heard the good news preached to us just as they also. But the word that they heard did not profit them. Why did it not profit them? Because Jesus didn't die yet? Because it hasn't happened? Absolutely not. Because it was not united by faith in those who heard. They heard all about it. They knew all the facts. They were the Iwana kid that could tell you and, re- and recite to you all sorts of Bible verses, but had absolutely no way to explain to you what was going on. No way was it received in their heart. And I'm not, I'm not knocking Iwana kids, so sorry, Iwana kids. That's not, that's not what I'm... There's a, there, for, for those of us that have been in the church from day one, the thing I fear of most of my children is that they become inoculated to the gospel. They go to Bible studies. They go to church every single week. They know all the facts, but there's no transformation. It was never united by faith. This idea of it was never like married. They never married the gospel with their faith. If you'll turn with me over to Ephesians 1.13, Paul again says the same exact thing through a different sort of lens that I want all of us to see because of this, this is life or death. In Ephesians 1.13, we read, In him, that's in Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Remember, 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel that Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again for your sins according to scriptures. The facts. However, having also believed, uniting your faith with that message. It's it's one thing for you to tell me that Jesus died and was buried for your sins. It's another thing for you to say, I've received that message and I have taken my life and I have united it with Jesus. At that moment of faith, at that moment of belief, we're, we're told here that you're sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. This is, this is a word is a down payment, like you would, like a good faith deposit on the house, that if you balk, it's lost. That the Holy Spirit is given to us to secure us to the, to the redemption day that we are secure. Okay, back to Hebrews. I will take a sip of water and let your minds catch up. So here we are, verse 2. For indeed we have had good news preached to us just as they also. But the word which they heard did not profit them because it was, uni- it was not united by faith by those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, eternal rest. So if you have heard the gospel or you're still wrestling with it today, we are told throughout the scriptures that at the moment of belief, you're moved from Adam to, the, to being moved into Christ. And in Christ, there is a peace, an eternal rest, that you as a sinner are no longer at war with God. You might not think you're at war with God, but God says you're at war with me because I am holy. 
I've made provision for you to not be at work with me, but, but it's contingent on your responding to the gospel. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And he continues, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my works, or my rest, not my works. This is where the all of a sudden, so we've talked about rest concerning Moses. We've talked about eternal rest looking forward. But suddenly the conversation shifts. The, the author here goes back to the creation account. He says, for he said somewhere concerning the seventh day. He's talking about the, the, the origin of cr- the creation. We're, we're told in the beginning, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He then lists day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. And at the end of day six, what did God say? He said, it looks great. It's good. It's perfect. I'm going to take a day off. Day seven, we're told that God rested. The question I keep asking myself is, did God need rest? (laughs) No, God doesn't get tired. God doesn't, God, we're told, spoke all of this into existence. He could be speaking stuff into existence until, like, we die and on forever. Like, God doesn't need any rest. God has every excuse to be the, the extreme type A personality that just goes, 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 because he can't. He doesn't need. He, but what does he do? He takes seven day off. He rests. It becomes... the idea of the Sabbath becomes sort of um, a, a, a pattern of practice by God as an example to his people that they would work six days and that they would rest. This takes faith, especially in that culture. If you, and if you continue the idea of the Sabbath, what do they do every seven years? They would have a Sabbath year, a whole year to take off. I guard myself from asking, can you even imagine? Because you might say, I would totally take a whole year off. But if you're in a culture where like your food is like you have to work in order to like sustain, like it takes, I think why did God, God did this because he's just a really awesome God. Like that God as our creator, he wants to give us rest simply to be a blessing to us. And I can come up with all sorts of reasons why I'm not like taking my rest on a weekly pattern basis. And whatever important reason I come up with, I realize that it really is ridiculous because if God took a day off, I can take a day off. And the thing that's keeping me from taking the day off is really a lack of faith. And that's the warning here. And it's really not just about rest, it's about your whole, it's about your, your, everything that he says. We live in this culture where we want to pick and choose how we're living our lives and, and say, well, I believe, but, you know, that stuff. How, how we practice certain things or don't practice certain things, like, ah, eh, you know, no. 
that was then. We're different now. We're more modern, more progressive in how we can do things and live our lives. I think that shows a lack of faith. And I think that there's stern warning. So in verse 6, I think, is where we are. The second, therefore, he says, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them fail to enter because of disobedience. So th- this is be- like, he's saying the door is still open. The, the, the door is wide, wide, wide open. And some of you in the midst, po- possibly here, definitely the, 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 the recipients of Hebrews, he says some of you are identifying with followers of Christ, some of you are identifying yourself as followers of God, but you have failed to enter into this rest. And that should cause you great fear. But it's okay because the door is still open. And, and as I read this passage, I'm thinking a few weeks ago, you know, I flew to Ohio, and on the way back, we, we went from Akron down to Atlanta. Atlanta is like, has everybody flown through Atlanta? It is like, I think the technical term is ginormous. So we landed, and it's like, okay, got two hours. Where's our next thing? And it's like, okay, we're in this terminal. We need to go to that terminal. How do we get to that terminal? Oh, you got to take a train. Cool. Okay, so you run down to the train. So, we're, so it's me, Joel, and Chris Guess. There's like the, the just thousands of people. You're like ants, and you go down underneath. It's like, for me, it's like every man for themselves until you get to the next thing. Because it's like, there's too many of us, for, and you guys are all big guys, and I don't need to babysit you. And so I like grab my bag, and I hop into the train, and then the door shuts. And it was like out of a movie. I wanted like the prison, like holding my hands up, saying, see you guys. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I took off. They're stuck there. But it was like, you missed the boat. Like, trains are not like you can, like an elevator where you can stick your hand in and open the doors again. You do that, your hands go into the next terminal. <laughs> like, in theory, I haven't tested it. Um, I would think that they would have some protection there, but I, it doesn't seem that way. Now, they caught up with me. But the picture here is the door is open now, but the door could be shutting. It could shut on your life at any moment. Verse 7, he says, he again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David, after so, long a, after so long a time just has been said before, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Over and over, today, right now. Not next week, not when you finish school, not when you move out of your parents' house, not when you get this amount of money, not when you get all of today. Enter in. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not pro- I'm not promised five minutes from now. Today, enter in. God is pleading, not with fire and brimstone, which is, hey, we can make a case that there's some fire and brimstone, but the idea is God is pleading with us, enter in. To what? To this rest. He wants to give you rest eternally, and then day by day, practically practicing a, a, a peace, a rest that only comes through being an eternal peace with God. It's mind-boggling. Verse 8, he continues with, the, for if Joshua had given them rest, now remember, who's Joshua? Joshua was one of the two spies who had faith to enter the land. He ultimately was the guy that God would use to lead the next generation of Israel into the land. They entered the rest. 
So if you're reading this modern day or you're reading this at the, at the time of the writing, they think, yeah, but they entered the land. It's done. They're, they're in Israel. Remember, at the time of the writing, the, the majority of Israel was in Israel. The temple, up and running, sacrifices, that was the very thing that was sucking them back away from Christ. They were being sucked under into back into the religious system. And I kind of think that that's sort of like one of the main points of this whole thing. Like, I didn't really ever come from a religious background where I was, like, burdened by doing works to maintain peace with God. Like, uh, you can make a case for the Catholic Church, but I was really a bad Catholic. But they're going in, doing all these things, doing all these things, and the writer's like, why? You've experienced grace. You've experienced rest in Christ. Why would you drift back under this system of working, 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 trying to, to measure up with God. And he says, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. His point is, this rest, the door is still open. It's available for you to enter into today. So there remains, verse 9, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Beautiful. I mean, guys, this is huge. God wants to give us rest eternally and in our lives today. That when you go to your car and it doesn't start, you say, well, I got to preach on this today. But even, even the, it's more the whole work. It's like, it's no big deal. Like, oh, it's, praise the Lord. I got another car I can just hop into and come to church. Like, no big deal. It, it took all week of God wrestling with me to get to that point this morning. And so I warn you, it's coming your way this week if you continue thinking about this. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. I think of Jesus in Mark 2.27. It enters chapter 3. is all about this like chapter of Jesus is violating the Sabbath and the religious guys are coming down on him. You can't do that on the Sabbath. You can't do this. Why are you? You're eating grain on a Saturday. That's work. You're harvesting. She's like, you guys are ridiculous. The Sabbath was created for man. The man wasn't, crea- man wasn't created for the Sabbath. Meaning, God created the Sabbath because God wanted to give us a blessing. God is kind to us. You're no longer under slavery. Verse 10, for the one who has entered his rest, eternal rest, has himself also rested from his works. The the practice of, of taking a Sabbath on a weekly basis now is the second part he's talking about. So for the one who has entered the rest, entering in, this is salvation. But now once you're saved and you're in Christ, the pattern continues in how you live your life has himself rested from his works as God did from his the seven or the six we often say the seven days of creation it was the six days of creation the seventh day was rest verse 11 another therefore verses 11 through 13 have blown my mind this week for any of you who have a church background everybody knows verse 12 For the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, 
something, something, something. That's why I kind of fade away. Able to judge the thoughts and the hearts of it. Like we we know that we we quote this verse, we go to this verse devotionally, but it changes when you read it. And it, I don't want to say it changes. It it, it 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 becomes all the more beautiful when you understand it in context. So I just want to read these three verses all together, then we'll go back. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him whom we have to do. Another, uh, you could translate, whom we are accountable in New Living Translation. So, so, you, so you have these three verses that are all in context. Verse 12 at first glance seems like, what does this have to do with the rest? What does this have to do with anything that the writer is writing about? It, it seems sort of inserted in a weird place. And we take this at first glance as reading it as the scriptures, which, which I don't necessarily think is wrong. You, you, you can't divorce Jesus from the whole of the scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, it's his word. But when you read this, as I've studied this all week, I'm like, I think he's talking about the Lord. Anytime I start thinking about some thought that's like way outside of what I understood, it, I get really worried because I don't want to go off on the deep end. But in my study, did you realize, like, or did you realize, I don't expect you to, I only realize. So at the Reformation, only did we start understanding this verse as speaking of the scriptures at the Reformation and following. So in the 1500s, pre-1500s from the early church fathers, they understood this as speaking of the person of Christ, which I think you can make a huge case for because as you go from verse 12 down to verse 13, he goes in, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are laid open or laid bare to the eyes of him whom we are accountable and I'm not saying, like, the Scripture is God's Word. I think Spurgeon was absolutely right when he said, I've read many books, but the Scripture, the Bible, is the only book that has read me. There's so much truth to that. Uh, going back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. The whole context here is that God has spoken to us through his son. Chapter 2, verse 1, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we, will not, so that we do not drift away from it, the word. We come here, we're talking about rest. We see, therefore, let us be diligent. This word diligent could be translated um, zealous to zealously do this, to eagerly do this. 
Let us be diligent. Let us be eager. Let us be zealous to enter that rest so that none will fall through following the same example of disobedience. It's fascinating to me, but we'll get to it. But we're in the context of Moses and how they failed. But if we get to chapter 11, verses like 23 to 28, somewhere around there, Moses is in the heroes of faith and that whole generation for what they saw. So there's, so this idea of not entering into like the rest, practically speaking, I think that there's warning. They're, they're so closely tied with one another. But we need to guard this. And it's so difficult because it takes faith to enter into this rest. And then he goes on about the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him whom we are accountable. How can we not think he's speaking about Jesus? Turn to John chapter 1. John addresses the same thing. Come on, I don't hear pages turning. Go with me, John chapter 1. I'm going to get a drink of water if I hear more pages turning. It's important. You look at me and you say, but I have an app. (laughs) Okay, touche, you got me. So we're going to read a long section. Things we're looking for, the word, the word of God, logos in the Greek. We're going to see Moses mentioned. It all ties. In the beginning was the word. The word, for those of you who haven't read this before, it's Jesus. And he's going to tie it all together to Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, that's the word. And apart from him, that's the word, Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God. Now we're speaking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. He was a forerunner six months out announcing the coming of Jesus. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, that's Jesus, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world world did not know him. He came to his own, that's the Jewish people, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory as the only begotten son from the father, full of grace and truth. John the Baptist testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me for his full, for of his fullness, we have received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, but only the begotten God, that's Christ, 
who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. We'll stop here now going back. This whole passage, John the Apostle, as he seeks to explain who Jesus is, he describes him as the Word. All in Hebrews, God has spoken to us in his Son. For the Word of God, I'm not going to read verses 12 and 13 to you again. He's saying that you can't hide from him. You can't put on a show. You can't act like you have it all together. You can't act like you're super duper Christian and that you understand grace and that, that you've got the perfect balance in life and that everything's going okay for you. Some of us are playing a game. And I do think that the word of the scriptures, I don't, there's nothing wrong with it because as Spurgeon said, this is the only book that has ever read me. That we come before this and it exposes the garbage in our hearts. We're told that there's nothing hidden from him who is greater than the angels, who is greater than the Moses, who is, we're transitioning to he's greater than the priests. He's greater than all things. And verse 14, which Pastor Barry, my friend from Calvary Chapel, Fallbrook, the senior pastor there is going to be preaching next week because I have a wedding next week. He's going to start at verse 14, but it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that's the incarnation, stepping out of heaven, taking on the form of man, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We saw this first in chapter 3, verse 1. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. What is our confession? In short, that Jesus saves. That Jesus died for you. He died for me, according to the scriptures. My sin, which stood in the way of this relationship with God, has now been paid for by Jesus, who bore the wrath of God, and God was satisfied. The word propitiation, which we've already seen. God's wrath was satisfied in the sacrifice that Christ made for you and I. So don't drift from it. Hold fast to him. We all know Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, Upon you. Now, what's this yoke? We're not talking about an egg yoke. We're not talking about a yoke in an airplane. We're talking about a yoke that they would unite two oxen with, right? I say right like I've ever done this. But yoke for rabbis meant their teaching. So if you wanted to study under a rabbi, you would take his yoke upon you. And so Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. What's Jesus' yoke? This is Jesus' yoke. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How can that be? See, the picture he's painting is when they, would when they would train up a baby oxen, whatever you call a baby oxen. 
Okay, nobody knows it. Okay, <laughs> a, baby, a little puppy oxen. You have, you have, you have a adult oxen who knew how to uh, pull a. Oh, I forgot it during the last thing. You know, the thing that you make, you know, like plow. That's what I'm looking for. So you would take an adult that knew how to pull the plow, and to train a young one, what you would do is you would place the young one in the yoke. And so the big one would do all of the work. The little one would do nothing. The burden was on the big one. The little one studied and learned under the big one. Jesus is saying, take this upon me. This word might seem difficult to understand, but he's given us his spirit. He's given us his teaching. It's not for us to work. He's done it for us. But we're to work out our salvation. To come to salvation, it requires faith. To live out your salvation, it requires faith. To live out a pattern of rest in your life requires faith. And so, Father, we thank you that you have said, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, that you will give us rest. It's a, that's an overwhelming thought to think. that what you're pleading is to come, experience eternal rest. I am, I am in awe of your goodness. I am in awe of your kindness towards us. Father, I pray for those who haven't experienced this eternal rest. I pray that you would help them to unite, to marry their faith, their belief, with the gospel, with you. And Father, for those of us who have believed, help us, Lord, to, from not following the example of Moses' generation of, of departing from faith, tasting but then not remembering. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help all of us who know you, who know your word, that you would help us to, to have the faith to live it out. The context here is rest. May we be a people of rest. In how we live our lives, we pray that you would help us to have the faith to do the right thing. We love you, Lord. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.